rare birds of Massachusetts. The farmer's daughter's lover's son lives in Wellfleet, where the northern flickers bless Route 6 with muffled drums each spring. Marconi had a wireless station there, aimed all the way across the Atlantic like a pilgrim in reverse, backing up over history, bad plumbing or the car over the corpse of Pasolini in that coil song, or real life. The cartoon red tomato on the pastine can, fresh off a truck from where else? Canton or the New England coffee factory in Malden that gives every sunrise notes of smoke and extremely burnt caramel. The sun was one of the most beautiful people I had ever seen. He made me speak badly and break my lines in obvious ways, on nouns and verbs. I hated feeling so simple because what is more humiliating than to be reminded the thing you want most in life has only one part, one speaking role. John Wieners's God is like this, his sound always getting stolen or taken away, like the state would take your child if you nailed him to a tree. I desperately wanted not to be nervous, to know my lines and deliver them with care and thoughtful originality on cue, bus service replacing trains from JFK UMass to Quincy Center, because as with radio waves, sometimes a little help is needed to get where one is going. Gloucester, Manchester by the sea, D.D. Perks, a private beach where white seagulls scream and scream and nothing happens to them. A bookstore, tons and tons of Olson, ice cream places with names like Friendlies and absolutely no love lost between motorists. Inexplicably many trucks and above them one white-faced storm petrol making its statistical pilgrimage over the Cape Islands, enough lenses open below to keep the enthusiasts twittering for another year. Not that I blame them. Waiting to see is half the magic of being alive. Frank O'Hara on a tant du Polish rider with Vincent, i.e. prevailing, conquer, and how many Francis middle names on the South Shore. Or the big wave you knew was coming with the storm surge, wrong coast to surf it, but right one to photograph and submit it to the glossy magazines. Sylvia Plath assiduously sent her work out. Ted's too. Her mom helped and still the rejections poured in like seawater. Enough to stare at the tides until a body washes up so you can crawl into it and pretend to live. Holding a shell, you can hear the surface of the moon the gray silence cats know when they're sleeping and debtors know when the doorbell rings metaphorically since there are apps for that now if you open the door it's the sun if you leave it unanswered it's the thief on either side tongue in your ear either way like a patient identify without a label song of the toe tag venereology being not a death metal record, Masami Akita needed to listen to a lot of death metal records to make. Death like Ovid as change, not death as an end at all. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 43 of Of Poetry Podcast. You've been listening to Tom Snarsky read from his new book, Reclaimed Water. Tom Snarsky is the author of the chapbooks Threshold, Another New Calligraphy, and complete sentences from Broken Sleep books, as well as the full-length collections Light Up Swan and Reclaimed Water, both from Ornithopter Press. He lives in the mountains of northwestern Virginia with his wife, Christy, and their cats. You can find him at Tom Snarsky on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky, and you can find the reading series he coordinates at Nightlight Poems on Instagram and Nightlight Poems on Twitter. If you're a poet, he would love to hear from you. Hi, and welcome, Tom. Hey, and thank you so much for having me back on. I'm I'm thrilled to be here times two. Yes, you. I I can't believe, but you were the third guest on this show in summer 2021, right after I'd started it. So you took a leap on a brand new non-tech oriented person and passion art project. So thank you for that. 
I'm a big fan of the like very early moment of like a literary or literary adjacent project when like issue one is coming together or like the first couple episodes of a podcast are happening. That's like the real beautiful germinal moment. So I'm I'm all the more happy to have been part of it then and to get to be part of it again now because you've I've been listening to of poetry religiously since it's been coming out and it's just always such a, a joy to hear you talk with poets and to just like, yeah, your poems too. We were talking about the importance of hearing actual poems in the podcast right before we recorded, which is very important as well. Thank you for that. I do really love the new format in part because if you're a poet who doesn't love listening to themselves or is nervous about speaking, which that does come up fairly often, it kind of puts you in your like your zone of like, hey, you're just you're reading your poems. You're reading your poems to someone and like, oh, we've, that's what we do. Um, So it puts the guest in a comfortable place. And it also gives me this beautiful moment of sitting back and listening. And that is really lovely. In fact, it feels just really great to, to listen to a poem. And I was thinking earlier, like, it's a lot like a serenade, like you get poems. In fact, I have a poem I want to read for you at some point tonight. You should do it right now. That would be beautiful. Yeah. You want a poem? I would I love to. Thank you. Yes. I read this poem at work today between students. It's June Jordan's sketching in the transcendental. And I immediately just with some of the things that your work is interested in doing, it reminded me a lot of you. So here it is. Sketching in the transcendental. Through the long night, the long trucks running the road, the wind and the white pines does not ululate like that. Nor do the boreal meadowlands, the Mesopotamia of the spirit does not sing. The song of the long trucks. The spirit differs from a truck, a hell of a lot. What a compliment that that poem made you think at all of me. That is marvelous. Thank you for coming out and sharing. Yeah, I do think I mean, what you do with just a real variety of language, you have, you're a master class in, and I use that word advisedly, but a master class in just the range of your language registers and the kind of roving attention um, of your lines. And just, you're all like, you really bring in so many different things and you're just, it's very apparent that you're interested in the poem. You're interested in the poetry. Um, you're kind of fascinated by, oh, I always think of that infinite variety um, from Shakespeare's Cleopatra. I always think of that. But, you know, and this, and one of the things we talked about is like, oh, we should talk about scale and long poems, right? Um, and I'd love to consider this a long poem episode two or you know, like whatever. <laughs> but from, you know, a single line, and how you right? Wait, can you tell me again? Uh, you will explain this better. This is Monday evening, and we've both been probably working. Um, so, <laughs> so my brain. Can you explain? It, don't you have a small sonnet form that's like fourteen syllables, or don't you? Yeah, the uh, the minimal sonnet or or mini son. Yes. So I, I was just talking to Joe Yanni, who who came up with the form with me earlier today, because uh, we've been writing a little bit about it, trying to get word out that it exists. But like we did a little chapbook of these poems that are they're fourteen letters long. That's that's the whole constraint, uh, and so they're super duper duper short. Um, but also they generate all these variants. Like we we did, like we've tried like the fourteen syllable line. We tried. Um, and like I, I say we, but like there's this wonderful, um, a wonderful poet, uh, Melissa Ashley Hernandez, who has put together something called the Minisan Project, um, which is like a whole suite of like there's a publication arm, a, a journal. Uh, I think they're trying to start a press as well. But like all places where people have done things like write sonnets, each line of which is a Minisan. Um, and Kevin Bertolero wrote a beautiful like Minisan crown. Sorry, I could just like spout off on this for years but like um and like actually can i read kevin's cornet because it's so good i was yes, just at the, the other day um because like you know the the crown of sonnets if you had real room to be a crown of sonnets you'd like repeat a line from the end of the previous sonnet um and so the scale at which kevin accomplishes this in a in a mini son 
situation is really remarkable. So I'm just going to read it to you. I just have to scroll. I have this open. So um, here it is. It is, I don't know if it's titled, but the first line is Gabriel was here. Gabriel was here, here in my winter, winter and passing, passion through, rougher the days, days with early sun, sun that tires me, meaning I've got, gotten so eager and meager noontide, tide at the shore, more lines drawn and drawing me to my, my sweet Gabriel. And so I just like, I'm enamored, completely enamored with how Kevin in the space of only having 14 letters or characters per line is still able to like rougher the days, days with early sun, me, meaning I've got gotten so eager and meager, like still creating that echoic uh, accretion-y effect, even with such little space to do it. So I like, I throw that poem at everyone I possibly can, because I think it's so killer. Uh, and yeah, that's so... You asked about the mini song. That is that is the mini song, and that is Kevin kicking kicking butt with this kind of nonce form and doing amazing things with it. Thank you for explaining it more fully, and I apologize for the fourteen syllables versus um, letters, which is so cool and such a, a such a miniature scale. Um, it's pretty incredible. I've been really uh, honored in the way that it's like snuck its way into other people's practices. So like, I, I think a poet we both know and love is uh, C.T. Salazar. And C.T. has written some poems that have mini-san titles, has written poems that uh, like the lines of them are mini-san. Um, and like that sort of, th like, I just love that it's the sort of thing that you almost can do it as a form without even necessarily trying or like, you know, in, in CT's case, it's beautifully intentional, but there's also ways that they just sort of like crop up. Um, actually, can I read you one of CT's? I'm like yes. doing browsing over here. Here we go. This one is called um, Heirloom Antler. So the title and the lines are, are all mini sun. Heirloom Antler. Emptied thicket, fawn ran through, today the wounds, ringing and sunlit, cover us like dew, dazzling, isn't it? I love C.T. Salazar. Oh my goodness. Like, just kind of the best of softness and fierceness and just a dear poet. Thank you for, thank you for reading that. Of course. Yeah, C.T. and I are going to be pressmates soon, which I'm I'm like over the moon about uh so like because ct's book um 40 stitches i forget oh the rest of the title is gonna kill me that i'm not remembering it just now but that's an animal heart book i believe oh i did not know that that's so wonderful to hear i got news on the podcast <laughs> it's i i feel like i'm missing things being off twitter and um I mean, it's a good situation to be away from. So I, I have, I don't really have regrets, but I do when I hear like, oh, I hadn't heard that, but that's wonderful news. That's really exciting. So you and I talked two years ago and it was one year into COVID and here we are. <laughs> I said to you, like I listened to our, our conversation again today and it was full of so many fun things. I, I, I saw Ducks Newberry Port in the title and I thought, oh, oh no, had I just dragged Tom through Ducks Newberry Port because I was reading it. And then it, you were like, no, oh, it's the book I took on our honeymoon. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was actually motivated by Tom. It's so great. <laughs> Classic. Because it's such a good book. And Goat Simulator, which was hilarious and um still going strong in our house. I don't I don't really know how. Years of Goat Simulator. That's a parent memoir right there that you've got. Yeah. And I also said to you, I said, Oh yeah, because I've got these two manuscripts I'm working on. One is Larks and one's this third one, and it does more with art. And Tom, I just had this moment where I'm at the exact same place I was then. <laughs> <laughs> I was oh, like, fudge. <laughs> I was like, wait. And it sounded like new and fresh and I was excited about it. And and in my head, those are still new manuscripts. So I'm like, yeah, Larks is my one I'm shopping. And then like this other, but no, it just the years, the way the years pass by. And I've been joking about like the ship of Theseus with manuscripts and it <laughs> it kind of is that. Um, 
so there's that. I've had to sit with that this afternoon. <laughs> I was like, dang it. Dang it, two years, and I feel like I'm in the same exact place. But um, a lot has changed, and you have a brand new book, and um, you have a book forthcoming, which you've already mentioned, so I can mention. I didn't want to yeah. scoop that um, with Animal Heart Press. Um, so that's so exciting. And I'd love to ask you about you know, the experience of going through two books with a small press, because now you've, you have um, both Light Up Swan and Reclaimed Water, and you've worked with Mark Harris at Ornithopter. And Ornithopter is just one of my favorite presses and super excited to have a second. Like I just spoke with Erin Malone in the fall and I love her book, Sight of Disappearance. And I think Mark has such a clear, beautiful editor's eye for what he's doing. So yeah, is there anything you want to share with listeners about like what that was like and how that worked? And sorry, I do this thing where my sentences just go on. It's so nauseating. Diane Seuss, um, she was talking about how like she can have a book come out every three years with Grey Wolf. So that's just what she does. And it's like a schedule. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. And it's not how most of us work, right? Or we'd love to, but it, it, there's a lot more variety in terms of time and chronology with our books. So yeah, I'd just love to hear more about what that was like for you having, you know, were they one manuscript at one point and they split like a new work? How, how did all this come about for you between Light Up Swan and Reclaimed Water, your newest? That's a very good question. Yeah, I, I think about that, like the time of of books and of manuscripts and stuff. And I think about how different it is. Like I, the poem I opened with uh, has a line about John Wieners, who was a, I think very much like a journal and notebook kind of poet. Like he would, like there's a a beautiful press called Bootstrap Press uh, that has published some of Wieners' books and like notebooks and stuff. And like he, there's these stories about him just like giving notebooks to people who came and visited him. Uh, like the 707 book from Sun and Moon is like that. Um, but like the idea that he just like had these books full of poems and was just constantly, like I have, I have a lot of poet models like like John Wieners and I, you know another poet I think you and I both share an affinity for is uh, Noel Cocott and Noel is also a, a very prolific like Noel posts uh, poems on Facebook now which I'm not on Facebook but Joe sends me the Noel poems when they get posted some of which are astonishing but like I I tend not to operate in that like prolificacy filling notebooks kind of operation and so in in that situation it's like I think I may have talked about it the first time we were on here that like Light Up Swan was a book that came out of like years of of poems that I had written all the way back from like being in college and just starting writing poetry. And um, Mark uh, like kind of helped shepherd that book into being from, like you said, with like splitting into two, it was two manuscripts originally. Um, maybe we talked about the original one was called Sorry Again. And it was like a really funky, it had like some translations and other other odds and ends. And then Light Up Swan was like totally separate. Um, but they, you know, I'm very glad they came together to become one book. Uh, and then Reclaim Water was a very different experience. It was one where I had a few poems from it that I kind of knew we we're going to give it a, a sort of direction. Uh, one of the poems in it is called Outer Tactics. And it's a poem that's kind of about, it's a lot of things, but it's a, it has kind of something similar to Light Up Swan and that it's connected to music and musicians. And one of the musicians in it is is my mom, who's a, a singer and a vocalist um, and has recorded music over the years. And like, I knew when I was writing that poem, like this particular shape it was taking, it has these really short lines. Um, of the, in fact, I think it's one of the two word lined poems uh, in the book, which is like a commitment for a, for a printer. <laughs> so thank you, Mark, for allowing that. Um, but like, I knew that that was going to kind of set up some, some things like pairings and doublings and stuff, which were also part of how like Light Up Swan came together. I was thinking about that, like doppelgangery undertow sort of effect that you can create in a manuscript when things call back and ripple um, and do that sort of thing. So that Reclaim Water had kind of come mostly together uh, from just throwing some poems in a document before Mark looked at it with me. Um, but I'm very glad he did because there were lots of things like I have a uh, handy right next to me, my little chapbook called uh, Complete Sentences, which is a book of poems about teaching. And one of the poems that's in there is a longer poem called Coin of Vantage, which was not originally in Reclaim Water at all. 
Um, but it's all about water. It's like all about water formations, like stone formations near water and reading vaguely like <laughs> pastorally foresty, almost Pacific Northwesty feeling poems by Stevens and Bronk. <laughs> Both of them were not Pacific Northwest poets, but like the, the, the trees in their poems are Twin Peaks trees maybe. Um, but yeah, like I'm very glad that, that the shape of the book allowed for that to come in and um, just lots of things like, I think uh, I may have mentioned it before when we were talking about Light Up Swan, but like a criterion for me that that shapes a lot of like manuscript choices is often the criterion of like dialogue. Like, is this poem talking to somebody that I want to talk to? Um, and sometimes I, I cut poems from manuscripts because I might like them and they might they might feel well wrought, um, but they don't feel like they're talking to anyone. Uh, and that's like, it's an interesting feeling because of course anyone, like if you read a poem, hopefully it's talking to someone, but like you can, you can kind of use that as a little rule of thumb. And it's been really helpful for me thinking about like the manuscript for Reclaim Water. It, it worked with some poems to like Georg Trockel and a few other poets who like I, Paul Blackburn, who was like my one left out birthday twin from Light Up Swan, which I thought was kind of a fun full circle thing. So like, that's, that's just like a rough a rough criterion, but I'm really excited because uh, there's we're still early days with the new book, which is called A Letter from the Mountain and other poems, but it has a, a run of poems in it that are talking to a few different people. Uh, so I'm, ex I'm really excited about that. And, you know, the poems are always talking to people, whether you whether you mean them to or not. OK, so do you consider yourself an experimental poet? Mm. Oh, th isn't there a Stevens bit on this? Isn't doesn't Stevens say all poetry is experimental poetry somewhere? Maybe you're making a face, which is making me think that. No, you have... no, that's probably me just making a face about Stevens <laughs> and thinking I haven't read Stevens deeply enough. He kind of annoys me. He has some really beautiful, really beautiful poems. Um, and I love your engagement with him and his work and legacy and so on in Coin Advantage. Yeah, I was I was thinking about your forthcoming manuscript with animal heart press too just that you do see some like on the page um you've got some adventures happening in terms of like i mean how your poems look right and then like whoa how would that poem be read how would you do what i like a lot which is just you welcome a lot of different things into your poetry and i really like I'm really attracted to poetry like that. I don't want something set apart as precious and something set apart as like too farcical or too, you know, low culture. Like I want it all mashed up and <laughs> I just want it all because I think that the best, you know, I think that a Shakespeare sonnet does that too. It's not that there's like high poetry and low poetry. No, it's just poetry. Um but I was curious. I was like, to, just because, you know, talking about, and I've already forgotten the name for this tiny sonnet. Oh, the mini son. The, the mini son. Thank you. Thank you. Ugh. Evening braid is the worst. Okay. <laughs> Monday. Can't trust that. Yes. I downed like two really big cups of tea before this. So I was like, I just knocked them back. I'm like ready for this. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so you didn't answer my question. You quoted Stevens. I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I think we've got a track record going now where you ask me a very good question. And I'm just like, quote, what do you think Anne, about that quote? Um, but yeah, I think I like the Stevens quote, if I'm quoting it right, or I don't even know if it's a real quote or not. But like, I think it comes to mind because I, I agree with you that I don't even know if it's like an agree disagree thing, but like the the space of of any poem that's that's really poeming that's like really doing it. I forget if I told you this last time, but uh, we like I have a document again something Joe and I made together called uh, "Poems That Have It," and just you know it's so like it's this this je ne sais quoi thing, of course. But like those poems can be totally they can be shaped so incredibly differently from one another, but they're they're casting that same not even necessarily wide net, but like a net that that catches a lot of surprises and does some strange like things that make you think a little bit differently and that that do that thing that have that set of movements or or choreography or whatever. And you know, I think I think one thing I hear in that a little bit too is that there's almost like not an imperative exactly, but a, a guide for us practicing poetry in some way, shape or form to, to do something about the things that we've like left out 
of our work. Um, I feel like Joe is kind of a ghost interlocutor here. I keep invoking Joe Yanni, but uh, Joe sometimes will like consciously write in ways that are not what he's been writing lately. So like if he's writing a lot of short lined or shaped poems. He'll be like, all right, I'm going to write some prose stuff for a while and see what that does or write from notes on different things that then I've been reading or something like that. And I think that that kind of like kind of juking yourself a little bit um, is a really interesting you know, sort of like writing with your non-dominant hand and seeing what what happens, uh, you know, and sketching and seeing what shapes you create. Like, because like for, for me uh, to make it a little more concrete and less out in the world, uh, there's we've we've I think talked about ASL before and there's this great sign, which I think is spelled like fam, like F-A-M, because you use that mouth sound when you make it where it's like four fingers coming off your head and it's like made up, like off the dome going like imagination, but also like kind of out there. And I think like for me, one of those things that was not showing up in, you know, like the light up swan and reclaim water poems so much was was ideas of like persona or character or conceit even like I think a lot of the poems felt like they came from one or two conceits, either like that kind of spooling let you into the process thing that had come out of a few poems or some of those like tighter, smaller lyrics that were designed to kind of get the eye out of the way in some ways. And I was like, well, what if what if there was something with a little bit like more character, like actual character or something with a little even like speculative conceit? There's a part of uh, a letter from the mountain that that does a little bit of speculative stuff, which is not my comfort zone by any means. Um, but I was reading some Will Alexander and I was like, I'm gonna go for it. Uh, or, you know, let's try some stuff. But like, I think that that can be a really eye-opening experience, even if you hate most of what comes out of it. Like, even if it, it's like, ooh, this is not what I meant. Like the fact that you try it, it's it's a very constructivist thing. It's like, you have to actually get yourself in it. You can't just like abstractly think about doing it. You actually have to like set something, you know, set thumb to screen or pencil to paper or what have you and give it a go and see what happens, you know. I was just thinking that, I mean, that we set up, that form is generative for some people. And for other people, it can be a hindrance or it's just like it sets up the expectations in a way. For me, I kick against being told what to do. I easily write in form. I easily write an iambic pentameter line. So I don't in my, it's like, I mean, anyone who's studied like Milton enough, like you've just, you've read so much, it's like in your blood. And so for me, it is far more challenging to write like a nonce form. It's so much more like if every line is different, like that's so much, that's, I don't know, there's more pleasure in it for me. I'm not going to say it's more difficult. I think it's just more pleasurable. And, you know, I think, but it's always helpful to have the kind of, what am I what do I think my poem needs or has to be? And what else can it be? And can I reverse it? Can I completely flip the form? Can I do something um, new? And and it's interesting because sometimes you see a poet who's been carrying some of the same forms with them. And it's time for, it's time for new form. You know, it's time to kind of shake up how we see narrative or you know it doesn't have to be this long column poem it doesn't have to be whatever you know whatever it is and since we're on a form topic and my my children know this about me I love gossip I love tea and um they will tell me like I have some playground tea or I have some tea from school like over dinner Right. Okay. So I really want to have some line break tea with you right now. And, um, you know, you just brought up character and you, you read your beautiful poem, Rare Birds of Massachusetts, which is just an amazing title and um, has such beautifully humorous undertones. It ends up applying to like many things in your poem. Right. But the lines, the sun was one of the most beautiful people I had ever seen he made me speak badly and break my lines in obvious ways on nouns and verbs. I hated feeling so simple because what is more humiliating than to be reminded the thing you want most in life has only one part, one speaking role. And I know it's not you, it's the speaker of the poem, but. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes, yes, it is. But Plausible please. himself. Please yeah. give me some some line break tea 
because I, I want and need it, both of them. Well, let's go back to something you said so that I can, <laughs> you know, continue to barrel roll through these questions. Uh, but like I was thinking about when you were talking about having read Milton and and having, you know, dissertated in Milton's neck of the woods and stuff like I think about how, like you said, there's a way that like these forms become almost like a par part of your your body, right? Like I think about, uh, you know, when William Bronk wrote his sonnet book or his book of like, I think he called them 14ers to like distance from the sonnet a little bit, but he would just like read a Shakespeare sonnet before bed, like every night. And he was like, eventually I was just thinking in them. Um, and I think that like, when you have a form that that is like that, that just, you know, is kind of doused in history before you even like set the set anything down like because I you know I I wrote a lot of a letter from the mountain in a in a 10 syllable line that was originally going to be a blank verse thing like it starts you know it steals the first line from from Browning and then kind of runs from there and I was like I can't do it all in blank verse I will not make it um but I needed like in some ways I needed the 10 syllable line and like I I when in some of the writing that Joe and I have been doing about mini song we talk about how like when you have a counting form, there's this weird way that it like kind of becomes a cognitive add on where like, so for example, when we shared the Minisan, like we, we were putting together a page that Giacomo Pope hosted on uh, neutral spaces and we were taking submissions from anybody who would fill in a Google form. And so I happened to be at like a conference of math and science teachers at the time. And I was like, do y'all want to write some of these? Like, and these were folks who I don't know if they would have called themselves poets in the moment, but the second they knew that it was a counting criterion, like they had like a bunch of my math and science teacher friends are on that neutral spaces page now because then they're like going around in their head and like I could see some of them like counting on their fingers as we continued that the weekend being like, let's see if I can, you know, wrestle this one into a thing. And it's it's almost like I think when um, maybe it was in your conversation with Carolyn, I'm not 100 percent sure, but like that that conversation about like the long poem is almost a way of seeing, right? It's like a way that you kind of structure. Um, it's almost like a filter on experience or something. Like maybe, maybe not like an Instagram or a Snapchat filter, but maybe not entirely unlike that either, right? It's like this way of kind of facing the world uh, and and putting it into this particular set of shapes and like, um, you know, making them talk to each other, making the history of the forum on the one hand and the conventions of the forum talk to the, weird unexpected clustering and contingency of just experience and what you run into um and like you know to to get this back to the actual question of line breaks like i don't think i would ever i don't think i would have been able to finish writing a letter from the mountain another poem like a letter from the mountain specifically if i didn't have that like 10 syllable line and my and like constantly wanting to ask like okay is this a bad <laughs> is this a bad use of the 10 syllable line like how can i re do this so it doesn't sound so uh, you know and like because I, I think that form lets you ask certain questions like that that like because uh rare birds of massachusetts is is free it's in tercets but it's it's broken freely and so there's a lot more like i think intentionality that we would hand to a poet in that situation be like oh that's how they broke that line but it's like oh well, well i was writing this 10 syllable line and it just that's how it broke like that's just how it is so you get to like externalize certain things or give yourself excuses, maybe. I'm not sure if that's a fair way to put it. Like, does that does that track for you? Or I'm curious if you're like, mm, I don't feel like I can get excuses when I write it for him. What do you think? That's so interesting because I think when I did my MFA, it was still so traditional <laughs> in terms of how we were being taught. I don't know. There are periods of time in poetry when it was super accessible acceptable to invert grammar in order to get your end rhyme perfectly and then there yeah. were other times when you would have been mocked for it so it really just depends on like what <laughs> what time what time period you were writing your poems in like certain times I, I think it was I want to say it's more acceptable 17th century and then like 18th maybe 19th but it's one of those like do you have to invert your line do you have to twist it some way and when I was taking forms class it was viewed as like you don't break a word. You don't like you've not you haven't written the line the right way. If you have to do some kind of like like it would have just been seen as like, I don't know, as not yeah. trying hard enough. Right. 
And so that is interesting. And, and I still hear some of that stuff when like, I think of Jericho Brown, he said this thing that I love, but also like, I am still here for the well-wrought line. He said that on Commonplace Pod. And I get that. And I love that. But there's the idea that the line is some kind of perfect unit. And I'm very, I tend to be kind of skeptical when it comes to being precious about something. <laughs> and right. so, I mean, the, yeah, there are lots of things to be precious about and it can be a good thing. It just depends. But I am very interested. And I'm also someone who's like, I love to break a line on a verb or a <laughs> noun. I like, I want to feel like there's weight, yeah. like backing me up or like for me, you know, I think I heard Robin Schiff say she thought the most, the boldest line break is on the eye when Ooh. it's like an eye and then nothing. And I was like, wow, that's really cool to think about. And I would never do that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, Sharon Olds is kind of a classic example of like, she's going to break it where she wants to break it. <laughs> I'm now doing some accounting and realizing on the second page of a letter from the mountain, I have two lines that break on I. So I'm like, Ooh. well, here we go. Or yeah, at least like, precipices. Yeah. yeah, like stepping off. I don't know. It's pretty cool. Caspar David Friedrich, right? You just have the I and then just ocean and nothing else. There's no right or wrong. Um, it's just fun to think about and... Um... I don't know. I was hoping you were going to say something really problematic or, you know, uh, in, you know, <laughs> about yeah, line breaks. <laughs> I think, I think one thing that is worth saying, because I, I think we're almost saying it, but maybe we should say it is like the line break is this sort of like quiet assassin in the poem, because when you're reading the poem out loud, unless you make the sort of creely choice of like reading it with the line breaks, you very often don't hear them and it like slips in. And then suddenly you can see a poem on the page and be like, oh, this is so different. Um, and like, I, I remember having that experience with some of like Noel Cocotte's poems, because Noel has some really like, uh, I, I think about those poets who adopt the convention often of like capitalizing the first letter of every new line and the way it kind of lends, because like like you were talking about the the line, I don't think it's about being precious with the line just from that choice, but it's like it it announces a new line in a, in a bigger way. And there are poets like, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've run into Nick Dembski's book uh, from 14 years ago now, but it's a, it's a fence book, I think called Nick Dembski and Nick wrote some incredibly amazingly line broken poems that also use that like capital letter at the beginning of the line, like breaking in the middle of a two letter word, like breaking on the O of of and having F on the new, like I might be misattributing that, but like there's definitely some really dramatic and fun, like line breaking stuff with that. And it's, it's like, it's just an interesting little piece of technology that especially when you consider like the many lives and modes of a poem like I, I love hearing poems out loud but I also sometimes like clamor to hear them on the, or like see them on the page because I'm like I'm so interested in in the shape that this poem will take and and what else is happening in those moments that like you're not hearing or you it's not that you're not hearing them it's that you're like hearing the superposition of all of them and you don't know which one is the one or which breaks are the breaks, right? Like, and so that's like, that's a really interesting thing to think about. It's like you as a listener somehow get a little bit more of that freedom if you're hearing the poem than if you're like looking at the poem and your eye is going back and, and doing all that extra stuff, you know? That's such an interesting point. This makes me want to think through some people since work. And I think I I can forget that because I spend so I spend much more time looking at pages than I do listening to poets, and probably that's my problem. Um, <laughs> but continue. McLuhan is gonna, you know, got to do the Catholic <laughs> gathering for the oral reading of the word. You yeah, know? that's right. That's right. But yeah, okay. Let's let's go back to okay. So. There's not anyone you're going to throw under bus and be like, they do terrible line breaks or. No, <laughs> I will never do that. But can I read you? Uh, I, I we, were we talked earlier about the Noel Cocotte Facebook yes. poem. Yes, can I read please. one? I want to read one for you and then I will like show you, but also try my best to explain to listeners what's going on with the line breaks. So again, Noel has been 
posting these poems. Um, Noel also had a book out this past year in 2023 called Ascent of the Mothers, and it went through the world quietly, but it's so good. And Noel is so good. Um, and I hope that Noel will get the same treatment that like Mary Rufel got from Wave, which is like the selected poems that just absolutely is sterling because all the books are sterling. Um, anyway, all of this is to say on December 27th, 2023, Noel Cocott posted this on Facebook. I slept in the garden last night. No sun, a slight rain warping my neighbor's headlines, a brush of hellfire on my cheek. Intimate rhythms of God coursed through my blood, and I did not feel any stress. Art supplies under the amaryllis plant, a cup of warm coffee with sugar. The window fell open, and no matter the language, when I die, I'm going somewhere good. And so that's Noel Cocott, kicking ass and taking names. And the thing I wanted to share, which I will be able to show hand, but I will be able to explain better to listeners, is that it's a pretty short-lined poem. And there's some like really great line breaks. Like when it says uh, intimate rhythms of God, it's intimate rhythms, stanza break of God, line break, coursed through my blood. And I did not, uh, stanza break, and I did not feel any stress, line break, art supplies, stanza break. And I just, I love, I love the line break that like has a moment of, comedy and levity to it like I did not feel any stress art supplies like made me laugh out loud when I read it the first time but I was like this is because like you don't you hear that as a sequential pairing of ideas when you read the poem out loud because it's like art supplies and amaryllis like you hear where they are it makes perfect sense but when they're visually separated um, and I wanted to share one of my favorite I don't know if we talked about Ben Mirov the last time uh, that we chatted but Ben Mirov is a wonderful poet um, whose book Hyder Roser is like one of my favorite books maybe ever. And um, he has another, he has a similar great line break uh, from his poem called Falconhood. Can I read it too? I'm going to just yes, like please. keep reading examples of line breaks. This is a poem called Falconhood. I'll read the whole thing, but then I'll just share my, uh, my favorite line break. Falconhood. How do you make the labyrinth fly? Become a mechanic of the soul. Is that a job anyone can have? chucking a wrench at the glass heart. Master of fine art, more like paper airplane disaster factory. Gerard Manley Hopkins, more like a clod of earth flung skyward toward God's stupid face. Feathers or snow, I don't know. Forest or forget, I can't tell either. Just keep tracing circles in the air. Keep skywriting your revisions for everyone to read until the mission is complete and you return to the place you started a light upon a gauntlet any gauntlet will do hmm. and so another example of the most amazing comedic line break is a uh, master of fine art more like paper line break airplane disaster factory which like not only is master of fine art more like paper airplane disaster factory so good master of fine art more like paper so paper gets to like go in where art is and that's like that's it that's the good stuff right there that's pretty amazing thank you for reading those those are both so excellent and i love that poets share their work so generously online um and i love that we have different points of access even though certain points get turned off or changed or lost yeah <laughs> Get their ad revenue pulled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <More> um, <laughs> uh, so long poems. Okay, so you, I just I just spoke with Carolyn Hembry about her book for today that's coming out with LSU Press this month. And Carolyn has a really long poem in there. And you have Coin of the Realm. Coin, sorry, me not cussing. <laughs> I said Coin of the Realm because of golf clubs, but I meant Coin Advantage. And I'm pretty sure I said Coin of the Realm earlier. So I'm sorry. It's just branded on my brain. And that's okay. I hope it will be Coin of the Realm. <laughs> <laughs> you are a long poem writer too. You have a lot of variety, Tom Snarsky. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I've just had this conversation with Carolyn and we've talked about long poems. And is there anything you want to add or bring to that conversation? And I know we've talked about Rachel Zucker's The Anatomy of the Long Poem and the kind of different attention it requires. Or, and, and when you were talking about 
the 10 syllable line that you use in your forthcoming book. I just remembered one of my Milton professors saying, well, you know, the thing about a long poem, it's not hard to keep going. It's very difficult to stop. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> oh, no. It, it's true. true. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I love. Um, so like if I'm remembering your conversation with Carolyn correctly, like there's this moment. I think Carolyn distinguishes this and maybe it's for like a syllabus reasons, but there's like the long poem and the longish poem. And like, I'm pretty sure we talked about uh, Henniker's Ditch last time I was on, which is like maybe my favorite example of what you could call probably like the longish poem. Um, you know, I think it's five pages or something like that when you print it out, but it's a whole universe, right? And it like partakes of these things that you know, when I think of like poems gesturing at cosmology, sort of like how some of, you know, Bridget Pajean Kelly's poems might not actually be pages wise that long, but, you know, we all know that they have completely, you know, or like two-headed calf is how many lines it's short as hell, but it's, you know, there's some, look at, I think how many stars are in that poem. But like, yeah, I think, I, so like, I'm, I'm really interested in that idea that like the length is part of what makes a long poem scale very scaly and very big and, and very macro, but it's also something that's very open, I think, to poetry of like any, any stripe um, at any moment. And like, you know, I think of like Aram Sarayan saying about the light poem that like the GH repeating is like letting it all in, right? It's like letting the idea of replication itself in and therefore the door is suddenly open. It's like the Pandora's box, like that Pandora's one hinge doing this little thing is enough to like, you know, just chaotically destroy. And like, I, I think maybe that's a, a way to go back a minute, like to understand what I think sometimes experimental, like when I think about experimental poetry, I think it very often, the stuff that I think that like fits that description countenances the idea that like little moments or actions or whatever can really blow up something uh, and, and make it do some kind of amazing, surprising thing. I feel like I had a thought and now I don't know where it went, but I'm very excited about this idea of like, poem. oh, I was going to, I think we were, I think I was going to talk about, um, there's a great John Anderson poem called The Inner Gate, which is like a, a dream poem. Um, it, it was in Poetry Magazine. It has like a Borges epigraph in the Poetry Magazine version, but it's like all about this um moment like a dream that he has like the speaker has about finding some like old teacher or something and following him through the streets and eventually getting to his house and there's this great line I think I may have also quoted it before so apologies if I'm repeating myself but it's like that single terrible oh man now I gotta actually get the quote wait mm -hmm. you should say some smart words while I'm finding this quote because you've you've had a lot of ideas smart words I think I'll just wait for your poem <laughs> I feel like we, it's probably gauche to read the whole thing because it's pretty long, but I want to find this one line in it because like there's this there's a bunch of lines in it that sort of do this world building thing where like at a certain time of my life, that failure I had long before surmised, which was a destiny born of self-consciousness, assured itself. I felt I had been walking aimlessly between shops and houses along narrow cobbled sidewalks, turning corners as they occurred in a Mediterranean city. So there's this like city character figure and later there's an admission that out of my longing I had invented this particular city and the longing inventing the city I think extends also to this like character that he sees who's like this former teacher person who he like follows through and then the thing that I wanted to find was like he has this like crazy moment of wanting almost to like strangle this guy um for no reason like he he doesn't give any reason why he would like have this feeling and then after he's had this height of you know, intensity. It's like if he had stepped outside, I might have strangled him only to see his face filled with blood. And the lines that follow that are, I desired a single terrible event, the passage from which would measure time. Hmm. That's That was where this was all trying to go. It's like the single terrible event is like that moment that could be, could come from like really truly anywhere and just like, you know, break the clasp on the box as it were. It reminds me so much of Ann Carson's, you know, how someone tells time, you know, is a local, is that it's a local act that it's, you know, we tell time in 
in so many different ways by how well we like what is valuable and how do we measure it is it the holidays is it um something holy or ordinary is it you know it's just got all these different layers um and that was the the anderson poem is that what you were just reading from that was beautiful. yeah that's uh, that's the inner gate yeah it, wow. it's on poetry magazine's website so i can Ooh. send you it's killer it's a killer poem while yeah. okay since i've got you here because <laughs> i was asking people at work this today so carolyn and i talked about inger christensen's alphabet and i read it which i i think maybe i'd seen little pits but i'd never read the whole book um it was blown away i just thought it was awesome it's got such a innocent little title <laughs> it's doing <laughs> so many different like it's doing some really difficult work and and i was like does everyone know about this poem and then why haven't they been talking about it? And then I post something and someone's like, oh my God, this is the best poem. And then all these people are like, yeah, it's amazing. I'm like, why haven't all you <laughs> fools been talking? <laughs> like, then why no one like grabbed me by the collar and been like, why haven't you read this? You need to read it. <laughs> uh, right. Because all of our, our reading and our loves are by intimidation, right? Um, but yeah, you know the poem, you know, I'm like, do you know this town? <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say a lot of my uh, early poetry education was just like what they happened to have on the shelves at the Grolier Poetry Bookshop in Harvard Square. And because that was like the first place that I would go. And so they had a lot of William Bronk books, which was always very good for me. And then they did have uh, Alphabet. And my uh, my friend Elliot Cardinot, who's a wonderful poet who also shares work like on Instagram and places, uh, actually lives in Denmark now. So he just got in Danish, the collected Inger Christensen wow. poems. And he was like, like, he's been writing after her. And she has, um, is it the Requiem for a Butter, the Butterfly Requiem is another book. That one is also quite stunning. But like, he, he's trying to, he's reading them in Danish, which I'm like, that's awesome. I, yeah. I, I feel the same way. I have a copy of the Saint Le Coeur, which is the like collected on Marie Albiac book, which just like scares the hell out of me every time I look at it more than it, more than I try to read it. But it's like, there, there's something about like actually reading a poet in the original mm. that is important to try, even if you don't <laughs> truly succeed in it. Yeah. There just seems to be, you know, that what, what is available to us is so vast. There are so many books and we kind of have these through lines through our teachers, through our little bookstores, through our libraries and all the different spaces we've inhabited across our lives. And sometimes I meet with regret when I'm like, why haven't I crossed paths with this poem before? You know, apricot trees exist. Apricot trees exist. Like, where have you been? Where have you been my whole life? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's exciting. I mean, it felt like the freshest thing I'd read in for her. And like this translation came out in 1981 from New Directions. And it just felt like, oh God, I think everything I'm going to compare to like, we stayed over the overnight in Iceland coming back from Rome this summer. And the air, especially after like the absurd hotness of Rome in July, <laughs> the right. air in Iceland was like mint. It was like so fresh, so cold. It felt like air conditioning outside. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> My body was in such like, you know, yeah, but it felt alert. so fresh. And that's just like how I felt reading Inger Christensen. And that was the first book I'd read by her. Also, I'll be very honest. I definitely thought Inger Christensen was a man. And that's probably why I hadn't looked up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that I have a thing against men in general. But there's like a certain era of like manly poetry that I'm less into. And that is the 20th century man, probably. So there's like a certain vibe, especially in American poetry. And, and there are some amazing people. And I, I have a lot of beloves. But if it's someone I don't know, I'm like, hmm, hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't That'd know. Yeah. <laughs> And there's so much to read and I have piles of books around my bed and books by friends I haven't even read yet. You know, it's just like the the economy of the attention and where it goes and and we're moody creatures every day. One thing I, I think we talked about, because you mentioned we we talked about Ducks Newburyport last time. And 
when I think about like the Ducks Newburyport thing and I think about Alphabet, I think about the repetition of like a really minimal element, really like Ducks Newburyport's the fact that and uh, exists in which I don't know how to say in Danish. So I'm very curious, like what the Danish word is there. But like I, I definitely like I stole that notion of like the the small repetition there's a, a poem in reclaim water called uh what can and cannot pass through the green glass door that operates in that sort of similar vein um because i'm like really i'm really amazed at the idea of like a small repetition generating a whole universe right like i think we talked about uh the there's cellular automata in light up swan which is like a similar idea like the little like boxes in Conway's game of life, like follow their little rules. And then eventually a whole thing happens. Um, it's almost like a monocellular monadological thing that's happening. Um, and like, I, I think that that move is amazing. Like when you, when you can build something really big and, and architectural out of these, cause like, for example, like I, I love um, like Ronald Johnson's work and like arc and, and stuff, but like, Johnson is doing something very expansive. Like it's not leaning on like a very small device. It's, it's leaning on this kind of incredible big as the planes, you know, like you might be able to say about the, about arc and the other Johnson poems, but like that, that moment of like taking this little thing and almost rocking it until it pendulums into something. That's, that's like a move that I think is amazing. I just like wrote a poem the other day that did something similar and I'm like, Oh, I should, we should name, this thing because it's it's kind of an amazing like what's what do we call you know the tiny anaphora that could or something like mm -hmm. we when you were talking i was thinking and i think this is something you do really well is look at and i didn't mean to make that sound like a judgment or like i'm approving of you or something weird but <laughs> it's just like i love this is that you look at different facets like you'll look at a line, you'll look at a stanza, you'll look at a, what happens on a page and you're willing to look at something in more than one way. And um, I think that that brings the level of play that's like really needed in, in poetry to like get poetry. Um, and you do the small Sunday poem. Is, am I saying that right? A small poem Sunday. Small poem Sunday. Small poem Sunday. And I mean, it, I think I saw when I see something of yours on Instagram, I like run over to Blue Sky so I can repost it, you know. Um, <laughs> right. But you, I saw a part of your poem, the collected poems of Paul Blackburn on Instagram. And I just read your book, but like seeing you post it as like its own individual poem, just helped me like look at it so differently. And I was like, dang, that's so beautiful. And I just, I think that's like such a beautiful thing that you bring into your practice of reading poems and sharing poems and thinking about new forms. And, um, I just, I love that. And, you know, being able to just see new ways of looking and new ways of hearing. And that's essential. I think that we keep turning. I'd love to be thinking of something other than a Rubik's cube, but like that, that we like turn and like can't really be solved. Like the sides, they're not the same colors. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, the color blind among us. Terror. Terror. <laughs> yeah. It's really like what you just said made me think like, cause I, I was talking about Elliot earlier uh, and Elliot, in addition to being a great poet is a, is a jazz musician. Like when Elliot came on uh, nightlight, the reading series, he uh, both read poems and played, um, which I felt terrible. Cause like zoom did an awful job of like doing justice to that, but we fixed it a little bit. Like he sent me some recordings and stuff. But um, anyway, all that is to say that like, I have uh, another manuscript that's like a chapbook manuscript uh, called the French inhaler after like the whole, French inhale idea of like kind of breathing in your own air to some degree and like there's a little bit of like jazz in it the literal music like literal jazz musicians and people um and like I think about the way that that like you know that there's a really generative version of this which is like riffing right and and positively framing and like yes anding somebody uh and their work and and trying to build it into something like very much there's poems in in reclaim water and then a letter from the mountain and other poems that are that are hopefully doing that with other people's work who I've really admired and um, like the poems for Mark Mark Kirshen is like a 
you know, somebody who is really important to me and, and is in that book a little bit and stuff. But like, there is also, I think, I feel like it's important to name that there's like another side to this, which is the whole, like, I think about that. Um, I think it was Kava Akbar wrote something about like erasure and, the thing that like sometimes you can try to lift and recontextualize something and actually do a great deal of violence to it uh, in a way that's not good right in a way that like me or, or in a way that like presupposes that you have unfettered access to this thing and can recombinatorialize it any way you want and I think that's how you get to like you know <laughs> oh god okay you wanted tea let's let's throw tea in there I think that's how you get to like Kenneth Goldsmith reading stuff that I don't think you want to read out loud out loud and it turning into a whole thing. And like, but I think it's because there's this question of like, what am I doing by reframing it in this way? And like, you know, it's also a little bit of like hubris you have to do all the time when you're like posting poems to share them. It's like, sometimes I have this really long and exciting poem that I want to share, but I'm like, I know if I post all of it, probably no one will read it. So what if I like reframe this little part and it might not really be the whole thing. And I, I get like, I, I might be inviting an avalanche upon myself here, but I get really warm hearted when like I post a little excerpt from something and then someone will message me being like, where's this from? What book is it in? Like, how can I read it? And like 90% of the time I'm, I'm ripping it from a PDF on JSTOR and they're like little magazines project, which is the most beautiful archive in the world. But like the fact that there's this interest in wanting to, to engage with the work more and more honestly, while also understanding that there's like, you know, there is, there are certain algorithmic proclivities that to ignore them would maybe be doing a disservice even to like the poet and the work. I don't know, like that might be a little grandiose, but like, I think there's both ways to play that. Um, it's similar, I think, to being a jazz musician and be like, where do I enter? When am I soloing? No, I'm not soloing. I'm gonna sit back here and do something else, right? Like, and that's, yeah, like I, I think that that's a beautiful thing about you know not to not to not to be really excited about an internet that's full of bad stuff too, but like I do think the internet is amazing in that it creates that ability to make those linkages. Um, did, I, did I ever was I don't think it was here. Did I ever, ever tell you the story about one of the uh, Light Up Swan poems, All Partial Evil, the one with Mersbo in it? Oh, so it was such a fortunate thing that happened, uh, which is that there's a poem in Light Up Swan called All Partial Evil that's in part about a seven-inch record that Mersbo and Masami Akita, who's in uh, Rare Birds of Massachusetts, um, put out with a, a bagpiper named John Goff. So it's a split technically, but it's really like Masami Akita's noise and the, the bagpiper recording together. And I name John Goff in it. And it was originally published in a little pamphlet called Two Songs that Fathomson Press put out. And Kyle from Fathomson put the PDF online. And lo and behold, John Goff, the actual bagpiper, found it and sent me this wonderful email and was like, I can't believe people are still listening to the record. That's so great. I'm so glad that it turned into a poem. And it was like the nicest thing ever. And I wrote it back. I was like, oh, my God, I love this. I listen to this record all the time. Thank you so much. And I, how was it working with Mersba? Like, tell me all about it. Um, and that was like totally a great example of like, without the Internet, never would have happened. I never, ever, 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 ever could have had that experience. But it was so cool. Like the second, like I was over overrun with joy uh, that's not the right word but like I was overwhelmed in a very positive way and I was like that's cool it's good the internet does a lot of terrible stuff but if it can do that all power all power to the internet or something that is such a great story uh thank you for sharing it poems make nothing happen Tom, can I ask you to read the collected poems of Paul Blackburn to close us out? You absolutely can. Thank you. You can ask, but whether I can find it in this book is another question. All right, here we go. Paul Blackburn, who was born on November 24th of some year. The collected poems of Paul Blackburn. David Bowie singing, I've got drama, can't be stolen. Claire Louise Bennett writing, I discovered early on in life that the right music can lend a glamorous edge to even the most dismal circumstances. Rosie Stockton writing, but parallel our songs, parallel and breathing. Alice Notley writing, apply the geranium lipstick and deviate. It all fits, Paul. It all feels like the choristers on risers 
heads toward heaven, a piano on tired legs accompanying. I have a voicemail from my mom. The oranges smooshed into each other in their bag. I hope the fines are all right. Nick said he'll tell me how to get his books. I still have to PayPal Mike for the painting. All creation ticks over, sucking blood, living in the tall grasses, lyric memory, troubadour poetry, stained glass, circus wine, rhubarb dry, and not too sweet. And you've been listening to Tom Snarsky read from his most recent collection, Reclaimed Water, from Ornithopter Press. And we will have a link to purchase in our show notes, along with information on where you can connect with Tom and read more of Tom's work. And Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate you having me back. I'm so excited to keep listening to Of Poetry forever and ever. And happy <laughs> poems to you all. Thank you. Yes, come back on the show when your new when your new book is out in 2025 with Animal Heart Press. It sounds good. Yeah, let's uh, we'll move it more towards once a year rather than once every three to four years. You know, get the cicada rhythm going. <laughs> the rhythm of the poets. I love it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Anne.